the summer of 1987. Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bangles topped the music charts. Dirty Dancing was a blockbuster hit. The Simpsons aired its first episode and the first criminal was convicted using DNA. And Rhode Island had a 13-year-old mass murderer on the loose. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Sally. This is podcast number two of Where Have All the Children Gone? Children Who Kill series. This podcast seeks to portray the truth and provide a victim's voice. It contains graphic and mature themes, which some might find offensive and is not recommended for young children. Mentoring a child you see going down the wrong path can help them be a law-abiding citizen rather than a serial killer. Prevention is more effective than rehabilitation. We want to stop evil before it starts. Last week we learned about the vampire clan, a great case for nurture versus nature. Tonight's case may be just the opposite. With that being said, here is the Warwick Slasher. Craig Chandler Price was born October 11, 1973. He was the third son born to Shirley and John Price in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Shirley was a clerical worker at Kmart and John was a manager for Pepsi. They moved to the 76 Inez Avenue address in the Buttonwood area when Craig was five. He loved football, baseball, and playing the electric guitar. At 13 years old, he was known as the Iron Man a hulking teenage football player with a baby face and a winsome smile. He lived in a ranch-style home with his parents. He didn't stand out, he was just another kid on the block. As an adolescent, Price joined a group of juvenile delinquents and racked up a juvenile record consisting of breaking and entering, robbery, stalking, peeping, drug use, and assault. What people didn't know was how this young teen was consumed about death and killing. Now, Rebecca Spencer lived two doors down from the Price home. She was divorced, mother of two, and was getting ready to move to a different neighborhood. She currently lived with her brother, Carl Batty, who was a security guard and worked night shift. On this summer night in July of 1987, her children were at her husband's home and Rebecca fell asleep on the living room floor after an exhausting day of packing. 13-year-old Craig Price knew Rebecca intimately. He had been stalking and peeping on her for days. Craig knew she would be moving soon and snuck into the home once he believed Rebecca was asleep. Craig first grabbed up a frying pan before deciding to grab a 10-inch kitchen knife from a kitchen drawer. As he headed into the living room, he stood over Rebecca and for a moment was hypnotized by the television, which played in the background. After watching her sleep for a couple of minutes, Craig then took the knife and violently stabbed her 58 times. The knife penetrated her heart, liver, face, and lung. Craig fled the home and hid his bloody clothes in the attic. When Rebecca's brother came home after work, he walked into a living nightmare. He entered his home only to find his sister Rebecca Spencer lying in a pool of her own blood. He called 911, made attempts to resuscitate her, and the viciousness of this attack really rocked the neighborhood. 
People started locking their windows and doors. Batty never again stepped foot in the home where his sister was murdered. The crime went unsolved and then became cold. Then a little over two years went by and it happened again. On the night of September 1st, 1989, Price was 15 and a freshman in high school. While he stated he was high on LSD and marijuana, yet his lab work reported negative for both substances, Price removed his shoes, crawled into a window of the house belonging to Joan Heaton and her daughters to burglarize it. He went into the kitchen and helped himself to orange juice from the refrigerator. Having heard a noise, Joan Heaton, 39, went to the kitchen and turned on the light, catching Price like a deer in a headlight. She turned to back out of the kitchen to protect her daughters, but Price was faster and tackled her to the ground. The daughters awake, hearing the commotion, come running to the mother's aid. Jean yelled to her daughters to run, call 911, but they were frozen in fear as they watched Price assault their mother. Joan fought hard, but Price was bigger and stronger. He slammed her head on the ground as he strangled her, causing multiple skull fractures, grabbed a knife off the sink, and then stabbed her 57 times to the chest, face, neck, and ribs. The oldest daughter, Jennifer, who was 10, made a dash from the hall to the phone, but Price grabbed her, smashed her head on the ground, and stabbed her 62 times, coating the walls, sealing the floor with the blood, leaving her dead in the hallway beside her mother. When Price grabbed the youngest daughter, eight-year-old Melissa, she bit him and attempted to call the police. He tackled her, crushed her head with a kitchen stool, and stabbed her 30 times and left her in a pool of blood in the kitchen. The stabbing of Melissa was so brutal that the knife broke, blade broke off the knife and remained in her neck. Price had also stabbed his own hand during the attack and he removed his gloves and tended to his injuries in the bathroom. He didn't realize he had left a trail of blood and sock prints behind him. Price attempted to clean the crime scene with towels but feared that if he stayed too long, the police would catch him. He covered the Heaton's bodies with a rug and blanket, probably out of shame for what he had done. He gathered his gloves, the bloody knives, and the towels and sprinted from the scene. Now, Joan's mother, Marie Bouchard, accompanied by her other daughter, Mary Lou, went to check on Joan and her granddaughters. She was concerned because she had not heard from them over the Labor Day weekend, and they usually text each other every day. When they arrived, no one answered the door. They knew Joan had to be nearby because her car was in the driveway, so they let themselves into the house. When they entered the house, they immediately knew something was terribly wrong. The interior of the hall and kitchen was painted with blood, and a putrid smell of death permeated the air. As they advanced, they made a heart-wrenching discovery. They found Joan lying beneath the blood-soaked covering, her daughter lying nearby, and youngest Melissa was lying on the kitchen floor. They immediately called the police, who were followed by detectives. The home was taped off, and the crime scene was worked. The detectives were shocked by the savagery, and even the most seasoned investigator had a difficulty holding back tears. The Warwick Police Department worked day and night and even called in FBI's top profiler, Gray McCrary, to develop a profile and assist in the investigation. McCrary's profile included that the murderer was likely someone from the Heaton's immediate neighborhood. He also suggested the crime was connected to the unsolved murder of Rebecca Spencer. Because in both cases, the murderer used a weapon already present in the home, which suggested the killer originally entered the home for another purpose, such as to burglarize it.
It was likely the killer was caught unaware and murdered the eyewitnesses with a weapon of opportunity. Both murders had the unusual display of overkill. Due to the frenetic manner of stabbing, most likely the killer cut his own hand and directed them to look for someone who had a cut in his hand or bandaged hand. Expert blood specialist Dr. Henry Lee was called in by the police to evaluate the blood splatters and trails and examine the Heaton's home for clues. He collected blood samples and vital clues, including a bloody sock imprint, and whoever made the imprint wore a size 13 shoe. Police detectives Ray Pendergrass and Mark Brandreth got a break in the case. They were driving through the park near Buttonswood when Pendergrass spotted a familiar face. They stopped the car to talk to a neighborhood boy named Craig Price, 15, who Pendergrass once coached in a local basketball program. Pendergrass asked the youth if he had heard about the murders. Craig responded with concern that he was unaware of what had happened and that he had seen the bodies come out of the house the day before. He lived just a few doors away from the Heaton home. During the conversation, Pendergrass and Brandreth noticed that Craig had a bandage on his hand. Suspicious, Pendergrass asked how he hurt himself. Craig claimed that he got drunk several nights earlier and punched his hand through a car window on Keeley Avenue. As the detectives pulled away, they could not help but wonder if Craig was telling the truth about his hand. Why would he admit to two police officers that he had vandalized a car? It seemed unlikely that a 15-year-old teenager would commit such ghastly crimes as the Heaton murders, let alone such a good-humored and vivacious kid as Craig. However, the fact that the boy had a cut in his hand and lived on the same street as the Heatons was too much of a coincidence to ignore. It was something both officers felt compelled to follow up on, which they did. The detectives wrote up a report and began to investigate Craig's story. They learned that there was no police report of a car window being smashed in the area Craig mentioned. They also went to Keeley Avenue and found no evidence of glass on the street. The two detectives began to further doubt Craig's story. Craig became a viable suspect in the Heaton murders, even though many in the department believed the officers were wasting their time investigating him. Pendergast and Bradworth decided to follow their gut feelings and pursue Craig as a lead. They just needed more evidence to support their theory. When the investigators questioned Price to get his story on the record again, he, he said he had cut his hand trying to break into a car. The investigators were not convinced he was telling the truth and had him take a lie detector test. When asked about the cut in his hand, the polygraph said he was lying. They put him under surveillance. When they investigated the gang he ran with, they found out he had boasted about killing Rebecca Spencer. On September 17, 1989, 16 days after the Heaton family was murdered, they obtained a search warrant for his home and made sure Price was there when they searched. They placed the entire family in the living room as they searched the house. While the rest of the family was stressed, Price dozed off during the search. The detectives found evidence in a shed in the backyard and the attic that contained several bloody knives from the Heaton household along with bloody articles of clothing, including bloody gloves. The investigators woke up Price and placed him under arrest. Detective Anderson was in the unmarked police cruiser driving Price and his mother Shirley to the police station moments after they found the murder weapons stuffed in a trash bag in the shed at the Price home. Then to the shock, of the arresting officer's Price mother sitting next to him who knew why they were there and why he was in custody turns and looked at him and said, tell the policeman what he wants to know. What came out of his mouth 
Mech stunned even the most experienced and jaded listeners and sent his father, John Price, to the men's room to vomit, rendering him unable to return. Price's confession begins with Detective Colgan reading Price's rights, then saying, I want you in your own words at, at this time to tell me as clearly and as best you can what occurred there. Price responded by claiming he went to the house initially to steal a VCR before things got out of hand. Detectives have long doubted that, doubted that because Price entered the home with a knife and he believed to have known there was no man in the house. Price told detectives he took his shoes off, climbed through an open window in the bathroom. Then he went to the kitchen and opened the refrigerator and took a little swig of orange juice. He suggested, you should check the refrigerator door handles too, he tells the detectives. Then Price said he heard Joan Heaton first go to the bathroom and then walk into the kitchen. Price stated, she's seen me. That she kind of act like she didn't see me, turned around and started to run like toward back towards her room that way or towards her kids, he said. I don't know where she was going. Price stated he tackled her in the chaos. He said the child, the kids awoke and their mother screamed for them to, for help. She was just saying, get to the phone, get to the phone, Price said. When he asked if either of the girls did so, he said, Price said, nah, the daughter was just standing there against the wall. For Anderson, the most chilling aspect of the tape is how nonchalantly Price talks in detail about his murder spree. Price said Mrs. Heaton fought back in the struggle. She bit me. You can see the mark right here, he said. She bit me there, and I bit her back. Price said he ran to the kitchen and pulled knives from the block in the kitchen. He estimated he used six of them in the killing because they kept breaking. They were screaming very, very, very loud, and I was running back to the window, back and forth to see if the police were coming, he said. You can probably even see my forehead marks on the glass. Price said he took a towel from the bathroom and attempted to clean up, but stopped and turned his attention to getting the murder weapons out of the house. Then I just put everything in the bag, he said. I even got a garbage bag out of the bathroom. It was that bag containing the evidence of the horrors of Heaton House that was found in Price's shed. Price asked detectives, did you find all the Dixie cups and everything in it? I think they did, one of the detectives replies. Yeah, that was from the house, Price responds. Price said his biggest concern that night was whether the police were on their way. Before leaving the house, the same way he came in, Price said he covered Joan Heaton's body with a blanket and the two girls with a rug. When asked why, Price said, I couldn't look at that. During the struggle, Price said he got careless and stabbed his own finger through gloves he had taken from the Heaton's house. Detectives found drops of blood throughout the house that they believe belonged to the killer. The injury would ultimately be part of Price's undoing. Evidence collected from the crime scene was later found to support Price's story. The blood samples matched Price's blood type and his shoe size matched the sock imprint. Although he initially denied being involved, Price had no problem remembering Rebecca Spencer's murder either. He provided investigators with details of that night, again showing no remorse for what he had done. Unfortunately, Craig Price had the law on his side. Despite committing four brutal murders, Price would never have to face a trial or serve prison time because he confessed to his crimes before his 16th birthday. According to Rhode Island State law, all the courts could do was hold him in training school until his 21st birthday and no longer. Thus, after five years, Craig would be a free man with a clean record. Price bragged he would make history when he was released. 
So, what happened after the conviction? Well, Price was sent to Juvenile Correction Institute called the Rhode Island Training School. Initially, he was a model prisoner. He completed his GED and some college courses online. He even performed light security duty at the Institute. The residents of Rhode Island were incensed. They thought that the monster only serving five years for brutally killing four people. The residents developed a group known as the Citizens Opposed to the Release of Craig Price. They lobbied for his continued imprisonment due to the brutality of his crimes and that the state psychologists were of the opinion that he was a poor candidate for rehabilitation. In 1993, Assistant District Attorney General Pine introduced a bill that would allow the Office of the Attorney General to commit a mentally ill individual to a mental institution if the person poses a threat to society. It resulted in Craig Price being forced to submit to psychiatric treatment, which he had refused because he felt it would cause him to be institutionalized even longer. In 1994, now Attorney General Pine, gets the Craig Price bill passed that would allow judges to consider criminal records in deciding whether someone should be committed to a psychiatric hospital. This case also led to changes in state law allowing juveniles to be tried as adults for serious crimes, but this could not be applied to Price retroactively. However, Price took care of that for himself. On October 3, 1994, he was sent to trial for assault and extortion after he threatened the life of a correctional officer. During the cross-examination by the prosecution, he burst into a fit of rage and claimed everyone was lying just to keep him locked up. He was sentenced to 15 additional years. In February of 1996, Price was involved in a prison fight with another inmate in which he bit a guard who tried to break up the fight. He was sentenced to an additional year. In October 98 and in February 99, Price again assaulted an officer, which added additional time to his sentence. In October 30th, 2001, Price assaulted another inmate with a pen. October 27, 2004, Price was able to be released from segregation and was transferred to Swanee Correctional Institute due to prior bad acts. He could not be released to General Pop at the facility he was at. July 29, 2009, Price stabbed a correction officer with a homemade weapon. February 11, 2014, Price received an additional assault charge for spitting at a correctional officer. And in April 4, 2017, Price pleads guilty to a charge that he stabbed an inmate, Joshua Davis, with a homemade 5-inch knife blade. It was caught on tape and it showed Price chasing down Davis, tackling him and repeatedly stabbing him. It was said that Price and his roommate were using drugs behind bars known as K2. Price and his roommate became very ill and he thought Davis, the prisoner that brought them their food tray, was trying to poison them. He received an additional 25 years, followed by 10 years probation. But it is unlikely he would be paroled due to his violent nature. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast about the Warwick Slasher. Music for this podcast was by David Feslian of Feslian Studios. Resources for the podcast were WikiWee.com, Horrific True Crime, RIPs, WordPress.com, FoxNews.com, WPRI.com, and Murderpedia. A book where you can get additional information can be found regarding how this case changed state law 
It's called a, a Call for Justice, A New England's Town Fight to Keep a Stone Cold Killer in Jail by Denise Lane. So remember, let's try and stop evil before it starts. Thank you.